You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Greetings from the United States Institute of Peace. My name is Peter Mandeville, and I'm Senior Advisor on the Religion and Inclusive Societies team here at the Institute. And it gives us great pleasure to welcome you all to today's webinar on religious peace building in Ukraine. Wherever you may be joining us from, we're very glad to have you with us. The religious front to the war in Ukraine has perhaps been somewhat less visible than the military or geopolitical fronts but it's been a very active aspect of the conflict and in fact has directly informed the geopolitical and security aspects of the war. USIP has been working on the intersection of religion, peace and conflict in Ukraine for more than five years. We've published numerous analysis and commentary pieces on the topic, hosted a wide range of senior Ukrainian religious leaders representing the full breadth of the, of the diverse religious traditions present in Ukraine. And we have also worked to directly support efforts on the ground in Ukraine to address divisions between religious groups to promote social cohesion. Today, we're excited and proud to officially launch our most extensive and comprehensive publication to date on religion and peace building in Ukraine. This report, mapping the religious landscape of Ukraine, was four years in the making. It's based on extensive research and interviews in Ukraine, and in between the global pandemic and the commencement of a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have to admit there were times we wondered if we would ever see the light of day. But it has, and we're delighted to have with us today all three authors of the report, Drs. Denis Brilov, Tetyana Kalenichenko, and Andriy Kristal. You'll hear from them first as they share some of the report's key findings and reflect on recent developments concerning religion and the war. I'm delighted that we're also joined today by two of the world's foremost experts on religion in Ukraine, Professor Kathy Warner of Penn State University and Professor Nicholas Denisenko of Valparaiso University. We'll have the opportunity to hear from each of them after the initial presentation of the report. Finally, I'm very happy that we also have with us Dr. Mary Glantz, the director of USIP's Russia and Ukraine programs to offer closing remarks. A couple of short practical notes before we get started. After the various remarks, we'll use the balance of time we have available to answer questions from you, our audience. If you have questions, you can enter them into the chat box below the live stream. I also wanted to let you know that the full report is available for download as a PDF from USIP's website, and we'll be providing a link to that as we go along. I'll just note briefly that the report is actually the fifth in a series of detailed and comprehensive reports on the religious landscape of countries around the world experiencing conflict. Other installments in this series address Libya, Myanmar, Iraq, and South Sudan. All of them are available from USIP's website, alongside our newly launched series of brief country profiles on religion, peace, and conflict, which so far includes Ukraine, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Myanmar, and Yemen, with the Philippines, El Salvador, and Sudan in the works. And now, to get us started for today's discussion of religious peace building in Ukraine, let me hand over to one of the report's authors, Andriy Kristal. Andriy, over to you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to be the first person from our team of three researchers to present our research, the mapping of religious landscape of uh, Ukraine. Um, and uh, I would like to start with uh, some very basic, some ground rules and tell a bit more about the context in which this 
research was conducted because especially today uh, in uh, when we are almost two years in uh, full-scale war of Russia against Ukraine, uh, it's very important to um, to keep in uh, in mind a different context. So um, at first, this uh, the very important thing that the vast majority of data in, in this report uh, is based uh, was generated prior to the Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, and uh, for obvious uh, difficulties and dangers, it, it was. Um, complicated to collect something uh, after that. But still, we have to keep in mind that the whole research is uh, part of a wider, longer context uh, of different events that were happening in Ukraine since uh, 2014 and uh, even before, since the time of uh, independence. We were, tried, uh, we were aiming to capture main changes since uh, 2014 and uh, to see the important role of religion in the conflict in uh, Eastern Ukraine. Also important to keep in mind some uh, theoretical uh, considerations. The first one is that understanding of peace building within this research was uh, taken in two main levels. The first one is uh, uh, intra-party peace building, and the second one is uh, inter-party peace building. The first one is mainly focused on internal practices of peace building, uh, focused on uh, one groups and the ways how you can build a social cohesion within them. Inter-party peace building, on the other hand, um, refers to um, contact with representatives of other conflict parties. And uh, a bit more on this, uh, my colleagues uh, will uh, tell you um, just uh, after me. Also, it's important to understand our research questions. Uh, while doing this uh, research, um, we had three primary objectives. The first one, we wanted to analyze the relationship between religion and various dimensions of levels of conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the second one, we wanted to map and analyze the role of religious actors and institutions in the conflict, and the extent to which religious entities are involved in existing peace processes and peace-building efforts. And also, we wanted to collect lessons learned and recommendations from peace builders, religious actors, and institutions to inform the possible design and implementation of future programming. Um, also, um, I think it's important to mention the general methodology. The interview was based on 36 in-depth interviews that con were conducted by uh, me and my colleagues, uh, Denis and Tetiana, in different regions of Ukraine, from, from Donetsk to Volyny Oblast. And uh, on this map, you can see um, different parts of Ukraine uh, that we visited during the field stage and uh, where we had pleasure to interview uh, religious actors of different religious organizations in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I know that, that map maybe looks not that impressive, but believe us that we managed to um, cover different parts of Ukraine and uh, our goal was to um, reach uh, all the most important actors of a religious process. Um, and also, I would like to briefly mention some key findings that we have from uh, the research. Uh, the first one is that despite the best efforts uh, of the main religious players in Ukraine, uh, churches and religion, religion organizations, they have not been flexible enough. Uh, they've not been flexible enough for their parishioners because they generally expect more radical statements and attitudes from their religious leaders. The second uh, finding is um, 
about active competition and uh, basically existing of uh, religious markets in Ukraine, which has caused that there is no single dominant church in Ukraine and the main religious organizations are not radically um, different enough. So basically different religious organizations, they have to compete uh, for uh, people. But as I said at the very beginning, it's always important to keep in mind that uh, our field stage was uh, conducted before full-scale invasion. And obviously there were lots of changes in that, since that time, yet it's very important to, uh, to understand how this dynamic was developing and look at this uh, through this timeline. Another finding is that um, religion became instrumentalized by different political actors and political actors are actively using religion. And given the market situation that I described in the previous finding, it's a very uh, good field for such uh, exploitation. And that's why religious actors do not hesitate to take advantage of such opportunities and to get um, additional attention in this uh, religious market competition. Um, also, the situa situational ethic model in the context of religious leaders involves in Ukraine a more uh, responsive rather than a proactive approach. In this framework, religious leaders, they navigate the complexities of various situations without a predefined set of actions. They more react on them uh, when they happening. There is also a risk uh, of uh, conflicts between pro-Ukrainian churches in Ukraine, if we can say so. But um, as I said, it's more relevant to the previous phase of, of the conflict uh, in Ukraine. And the main reason for that is also it also comes from this uh, market competition situation. Um, also, there exists urgent needs for uh, ensuring religious rights uh, by state. Uh, in other interviews, we often heard that uh, religious actors were basically expecting that in case of different conflicts between them, they expecting government to take more active role to uh, resolve different conflicts between them. A uh, few more findings. Um, Roman Catholic Church and um, Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate, they, um, from other interviews, uh, both churches, they stated that they do not play active role in the conflict, and they still have active parishes in both sides of the con contact line. And this is why they saw themselves as uh, very good agents for, or good platforms for uh, cross-contact line dialogue. Also, there is uh, another finding that we observed formation of um, small network of potential peace building among religious actors. And what is more interesting that, um, in other denominations, mainly in uh, Protestant churches, but uh, also in, in Orthodox churches, we, we observed that there are lots of local uh, peace-building initiatives. They are actively developed and implemented on that level. They were often more active than some uh, bigger um, dialogues. And also they caused cooperation around topics of dialogue and reconciliation that led to formation of those informal networks among religious leaders, despite um, different yeah, stereotypes about possibility of their cooperation. Um, one more thing, um, there were no clear uh, understanding of peace building or any general strategy towards reconciliation in Ukraine when this research was conducted and we also could see it from, from uh, our interviews. 
uh, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, active peace building is uh, mainly was locally based. Uh, and um, uh, one more finding that I would like to share is that uh, international religious stakeholders, they do not correspond to urgent needs uh, in the context of peace building. And um, I would be happy to uh, transfer uh, this presentation to my colleagues and continue. Thank you. Thank you, Andrei. I'll keep going. Historically, Ukraine has been a multi-confessional country. Today, more than 100 faith communities are represented in Ukraine, embracing 35,000 religious organizations. Christianity remains the predominant religion, and it is closely linked to national identity and the process of Ukrainian state formation. It is represented primarily by Orthodox churches of several different jurisdictions. Uh, the main churches are two, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, short YOLC, and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, OCU. Overall, Orthodox Catholic, primarily represented by the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, and Protestant religion, religious organizations constitute about 97% uh, uh, of the whole religious landscape. <laughs> religious communities formed by indigenous people, primarily the Crimean Tatars and national minorities, including Jews, Poles, Hungarians, Romanians, and Volga Tatars, are also traditionally strong in Ukraine. Thanks to this religious pluralism, the high level of uh, competitiveness between religious organizations, the Ukrainian state's lack of formal support for any of the religious churches, a system of religious denominationalism has been established in Ukraine. This means that a strongly pluralism system exists in which all religions have equal rights and competitive with one another. This situation stands out by its liberal nature and the scale of this religious pluralism and is very similar to the model that has developed in the US. Following in the 2014 Euromaidan protests, the majority of Ukrainian churches adopted by uh, adopted the ecumenist approach in response to the Maidan, leading to a to a show of real unity following the protests and the result result violence. In the years after the revolution, ecumenical manifestation began to diminish. By the late 2010s, declaration of religious unity were limited to the statements and aspirations in, of individual church leaders. Moreover, the vacant state of Ukraine's central government in the years following the Euromaidan protests led to increasing inter-institutional conflict, including among religious institutions, which resulted in a loss of common purpose and a much more profound sense of division in the country. After the Russian invasion in February 2022, and given the active politicization and securitization of religion caused by the outbreak of full-scale war, the main conflicts in Ukraine's religion field have taken more radical forms. The conflict between the two largest Orthodox churches 
the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and Orthodox Church of Ukraine, UOC and OCU, is currently determining the religious situation in Ukraine. Until recently, the UOC was an autonomous church within the Russian Orthodox Church, uniting more than a third of all parishes of the Russian Orthodox Church. After the Russian invasion, the UOC announced the severance of administrative ties with the Russian Orthodox Church, nevertheless maintaining the canonical connection. The Orthodox Church of Ukraine was born in 2018 from the unification of different pro-independence Orthodox jurisdictions in Ukraine. The OCU is the entity officially recognized and as autocephalous by the ecumenical patriarchate. Despite the fact that before the outbreak of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict in 2014, the UOC was the largest religious organization in Ukraine, uniting about 12,000 communities after the annexation of Crimea and the emergence of separatist enclaves in Eastern Ukraine, its dominance began to decline. The UOC received the main blow to its image and attitude from board sections of society as after the Russian invasion in February 2022. Facts of cooperation between UOC priests and Russian troops became public knowledge. The conflict was escalated by actively promoting inter-public discourse the assertion that all communities of the UOC that have not transferred to the OCU, Orthodox Church of Ukraine, are hiding or overt collaborators fifth column and agents of the Russian secret services. Slightly apart from this conflict is the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is the third, third largest church in Ukraine after the OCU and UOC with about five and a half million parishioners in about 3,400 communities. The majority of UGCC followers can be found in Western Ukraine. Also, the UGCC makes up a much smaller share of, Ukra share of Ukraine's Christian community. Its adherents are, in some respects, more active than their Orthodox peers. The UGCC is explicitly political, with pro-Ukrainian and pro-European or pro-Western position in general. The UGCC was bound by the Soviet authorities and operated underground for a long time, preserving its Ukrainian identity. That's, that is why among ordinary believers and priests of this church, one can often hear the opinion that it is the UGCC that is the real, it's true Ukrainian church. At the same time, some representatives of the OCU, its two patriotic church, have been proposing at the UGCC that if they are really a true Ukrainian church, they should unite with the OCU. Naturally, such statements cause tension between the OCU and the UGCC. And now I'll turn the floor over to Tatiana, please. Thank you, Dennis. And I will continue. And uh, sorry for the quality of the photos. At least we've got something from internet. And uh, just to 
to show some couple of situations as previously you saw Boris Johnson and Volodymyr Zelensky who are not active attendant of Orthodox Church of Ukraine but they came directly to St. Michael uh, Cathedral in center of Kiev as a symbol of a lot of events and also you can see here uh, on a part of a military march on uh, Independence Day of Ukraine, we also saw a march of Ukrainian chaplains. That was the first one uh, event such like that. It's the central uh, Hrushchev Street in Kiev, capital of Ukraine, and it was a symbolic part. They also, the church members, but not only Christians, uh, all religious leaders, are part of Ukrainian society and Ukrainian army. But also, um, we would like to say more about vision of the conflict, and by the conflict I mean war, and also armed conflict before, and a role of religious leaders inside of it. But here, by peace-building activities, mainly uh, we are now taking our intra-religious, intra uh, intra-orthodox also issues. And by peace building, we mean not external work with other parts of the war, but inside Ukraine, social cohesion development. It's really important because definitely we can get some questions about how it's possible to get peace building now. But building peace for us is about our social unity inside Ukrainian society. So uh, definitely, peace-building activities uh, mainly depend on charismatic and confident leaders, uh, who we can see a lot in religious organizations in Ukraine, and they're public. And to be active and good members for peace-building or insider mediators, they should be, from one hand, quite autonomous in their activities and quite independent. But from the other hand, not too public, not too visionable, and it's possible to get all the results and all the peace building activities due to the safety and security issues. But for now, uh, we see that it's not enough developed theological and practical basis for ongoing service uh, of such religious actors. They are focusing too much on humanitarian aid and social service, but we need to switch, if we take in, in long-term perspective of peace building, switch more to theological background and uh, strategic viewing of uh, uh, Ukraine on post-war period of time. Of course, there is additional need for new practices, engagement, and open doors of all religious organizations, and additional opportunities actually allaying in para-religious organizations. What do we mean by that? That could be all charitable funds, non-governmental organizations, some volunteer initiatives which were created by believers of some religious branches, or directly from religious organizations. Uh, for example, Caritas for us is one of these representatives because they are acting as charitable foundation, but they definitely uh, connected to the church. And also there is a huge need to take into account a number of veterans and people with disabilities and also people who were suffering uh, because of war. Uh, th those numbers unfortunately only growing and uh, churches and other religious organizations are facing this need and a lot of requests from society on how they can deal with it and what they should do.
And of course, religion, if we take the overall context of the war, because report was done mainly beginning even before pandemic times or in the beginning of it, uh, we've got religion in both uh, sides and we've got uh, influence on different directions. And here you can see this so-called Russian Orthodox army as a sign that it's used to. But again, as we, uh, in, in the conclusion of our report, we've got two types of peace building uh, taken into account religion in peace building. So it's intra peace building, it's aimed on social cohesion, and where religious organizations actually play in a really important role too, and they should be more connected with secular um, organizations and secular leaders. So it's possible not to double, not to make the same work in parallel, but to empower each other and to grow confidence and trust for society. And actually, we're focusing more on this type of peace building as soon as it's possible. And it's actually uh, doing, uh, a lot of people are actually doing it. And um, it's a good sign for our future and for especially post-war period of time. And that's another type of inter-peace building. It's aimed in some uh, time for reconciliation in general, and religious organizations can be a safe place, a safe platform for meeting the other, the enemy. But for now, it's not active, and uh, we do not know about such cases. And uh, what the types of peace building activities, and you can see here uh, our first meeting of inter-Christian military chaplains group, uh, where uh, actually sitting representatives of Orthodox Church of Ukraine, Greek Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, and uh, different Protestant denominations. And this uh, type of peace building we mentioned, this initiative for building social cohesion, uh, also for international advocacy and research. And it was before the full-scale invasion, so-called gray peace building, where uh, religious leaders or local priests, pastors, imams, uh, it was possible for them to travel through contact line with non-government controlled areas and to get some humanitarian aid, some medicine, get some uh, law support and to help to evacuate people from the war zone. And if we take into account multi-track approach, um, that's we were actually active on different tracks, and mainly all religious actors are active from one and a half to second and a half tracks of diplomacy. And uh, I'm actually happy also to mention our intra-Orthodox work, which was started in September 2022, when it was not so possible to think about peace building at all. Uh, but uh, I'm really grateful that uh, USAP and Peter Mandeville believed in it. And uh, we started a multi-track dialogue approach in our practical work. Unfortunately, I'm not able to share a lot about it, but it's like combined peace building activities uh, like uh, open and closed meetings of representatives of Ukrainian Orthodox Church and Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Uh, there are several publications, uh, online communication and ongoing, of course, monitoring and analysis of situation. There were preliminary meetings with both church representatives, both jurisdictions, sorry, because we actually were uh, corrected by our dialogue participants. It's, it's one church but different jurisdictions. 
there were several open and closed discussions about possible future. And now we are in the stage of adding external stakeholders to the process and believing it's possible to do something in uh, terms of social cohesion for Ukraine in future. And here actually is one of the symbolic photos of the last uh, year, uh, which we've got first Orthodox Church of Ukraine Council in Kiev, Pechevkovra, which was um, the main center of Ukrainian Orthodox Church before. So it's quite symbolical how the things are changing, but still we've got the same uh, main conclusions of our report through those four years of our work. And that's the huge request for Ukrainian state to be in a position of arbitrator for religious market players and to create a, a rule of law situation and safe zone for them to interact. That's a need also to international rep representation and in parallel to regional and local work on the grassroots level for all religious actors in Ukraine. And especially now in due to the full scale invasion, only help asking for international help and also uh, directly depending on peace building. That's a huge need for secure and confidential space for dialogue where all religious, all secular actors could discuss issues without fear and all the security issues. And uh, you can see here a small uh, military chapel in the field. It's close to the front line and uh, you can see the symbols of religion in all the places. And uh, something about future possibilities shortly as a lack of time so that's uh, a need for development of shared vision on peace building and reintegration but not only donbass because it was written before the full-scale invasion but the whole ukraine also introduction of academic and practical system of education for religious leaders uh, mainly not only in uh, understanding peace building and social sciences but also in trauma healing and uh social work that support people who suffered from war, development of systematic psychological rehabilitation programs that already developing a lot right now, and implementation of systematic informational support, communication, and especially in the field of fake news and propaganda, which are really powerful uh, on different uh, religious networks, and continuation of effective peace-building works through a combination of humanitarian, cultural, educational initiatives, and I would add also theological initiatives in all regions of Ukraine. We do hope it would be possible to do it, and uh, thanks USAP for supporting us. Thank you for your attention. Great. Thank you so much, Andriy, Denis, and Tatiana, for introducing the report and sharing some of your key findings. So before we hand over to our two respondents, I just wanted to remind our audience members that if they have questions, they um, are invited to type them into the chat box uh, that's just adjacent to the live stream. You'll also find a link to the PDF of the report um, in that same window. So without further ado now, let me go ahead and turn over to Kathy um, and and invite her responses and remarks. Kathy, over to you. Thank you for being with us today. 
Well, thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, uh, first, I would like to congratulate the authors of this report. Um, they tackle a very complex topic at an intensely difficult time, and they do so by uh, offering us great clarity uh, uh, in their analysis of the religious landscape of Ukraine. Um, even though Ukraine is a predominantly Christian uh, European country, the report does an excellent job of spelling out the dynamics that distinguish Ukraine from other European and North American countries and helps us understand how and why religion slips into politics, as well as the ways in which religious institutions are freighted with achieving political goals and are charged with providing social services. These are some of the contributing factors as to why we have something of a proxy war on a religious battlefield that parallels the actual war. Um, and these are among the reasons why I think religion should command our attention. Um, today, what I'd like to do in the limited time I have is to highlight two key points of this report and two takeaways um, of the findings. So first, orthodoxy matters and it matters on multiple levels, but we really need innovative tools to assess its relevance. The conventional wisdom used to have it that Ukrainians were nominally orthodox because the standard measures used uh, in other countries, Western countries predominantly, to assess commitment, allegiance, and the like were applied to Ukraine. And of course, the report, for example, notes the uh, low level of attendance at weekly services. But this contrasts with the very high level of allegiance to orthodoxy as a faith tradition. Um, orthodoxy matters because there might have been 74 years of state-sponsored anti-religious policies in the USSR, but this did not produce atheism or even diminish belief or religious practice. Really, what it did was to push them outside of institutional confines, and it very often supplanted knowledge of formal religious doctrine with informal religious beliefs and practices. And I would say this holds true certainly for um, the laity, as well as, as, as uh, Tatiana just mentioned, really for religious clergy as well, too. But combined, um, this makes religion a surprisingly robust and meaningful resource that colors politics and everyday lives with great import. And the report documents how religious symbolism, for example, is uncontroversially integrated into public space and how clerical leaders play a significant role in the formation of public policy and influence the workings of public institutions in a state that nonetheless claims to be secular. So orthodoxy matters, but we need new kinds of innovative tools to uh, uh, take into account what are very often counterintuitive dynamics. So that would be my, my the first point I would want to highlight. The second is that um, the pro-Ukrainian consensus among a wide spectrum of religious organizations has led to ecumenicism as an operating principle among religious institutions as a response to past and current challenges. And here is really the second key point. Ecumenicism here does not mean simply a, a benign tolerance of differences. Rather, it refers to cooperative, coordinated responses on the part of religious organizations to bring about targeted political change. Um, 
this is where the historical aspect, uh, the recent history uh, uh, aspect of this report is very useful. We see how religious organizations effectively work to block an attempt uh, at authoritarian rule during the Maidan, and certainly today in responding to the Russian invasion. This means that in spite of the conflicts among Orthodox churches, we don't have to be looking at sectarian strife. Although it's still too early to rule this possibility out, one can't help but be cheered uh, by what Tatiana just said of when you have members of the two um, uh, Orthodox churches, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, nonetheless insisting that they are one church with two jurisdictions. This is again where we see this uh, uh, consensus that exists and could easily be expanded. And that leads me then to the two takeaways from this report. Um, the first is that proactive intervention could pay large dividends, and religious organizations give us a great deal to work with. The report pushes one to recognize that the time for peace building is now, uh, during war, and amid, amidst conflicts, even among religious organizations. Um, in the aftermath of this war, Ukrainians uh, will confront an enormously traumatized population, widespread destruction, and environmental devastation. The end of combat must be skillfully handled so that the end of the Russo-Ukrainian war does not usher in a civil war in Ukraine. And I think the institution best positioned to play a proactive role in de-escalating social and political tensions among Ukrainians so as to avoid such worst case scenarios are unquestionably religious institutions. As the report documents, their embeddedness in local communities across the country, and um, going back to Denise's uh, comments about the various churches, although some might predominate in certain regions, all of these religious organizations see themselves as operating nationally. Moreover, they're embedded in global transnational networks, which gives them uh, independent resources. They have established track records of providing social services and humanitarian aid. And their hierarchical structures of authority um, are also could facilitate uh, responses on, uh, on myriad levels. These are among the factors that give religious institutions the capacity to function as bridges, connecting a grassroots level um, with the highest echelons of political power and even the business elite. And that um, uh, portends quite well in terms of uh, shoring up social cohesion. Um, many, uh, I don't know of many government offices or NGOs who can match those kinds of capabilities that I think religious organizations could offer uh, uh, in confronting the challenges of recovering from this war. Uh, the report states quite well the uh, intra-party and inter-party forms of religious uh, of outreach that religious institutions are capable of making. And in this first phase of intra-party, that is to say within Ukraine, um, uh, I second uh, what they uh, suggest in this report, that peace building is likely to take the form of social service uh, or humanitarian aid provision. Um, and again, 
when uh, when it comes uh, time for engaging in inter-party dialogue with Russians. I think it is really the co-religionists, um, Ukrainians co-religionists in Russia, that are probably going to be best positioned to undertake uh, dialogue, uh, hopefully leading to uh, some forms of peace building and reconciliation on that level. So um, that's the first uh, takeaway that I took uh, from this report. Secondly, um, uh, and this is equally as important, I think, um, uh, the report uh, documents how, of course, Ukraine is predominantly an Eastern Christian country. And if one uh, wants to invest in statistics, uh, approximately 88% are Eastern Christian. But this masks the fact that there is a vibrant religious pluralism in Ukraine, in spite of the fact that orthodoxy trades on an ethnic, even a national caste. Religious minorities are not particularly stigmatized in Ukraine. And again, we're not really talking about benign tolerance, but rather religious minorities um, are actively engaged in the same kind of political and even geopolitical initiatives. So my second takeaway is that minority religious groups are likely to play an outsized role, both in terms of intra-party peace building, that is to say within Ukraine, as well as inter, that is to say with, uh, with Russia, peace building on both levels. And that's because uh, most religious minorities in Ukraine openly and vigorously supported the creation of an independent Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And yet, they have quite a vested interest in not seeing this church emerged, emerge as an unchecked ally of the state, as uh, single Orthodox churches do in other uh, Eastern European countries. And so this gives them an incentive to play an essential role in uh, quelling intra-Orthodox tensions and tensions more broadly across Ukrainian society. So one of the factors I think that contributes to the outsized importance of religious minorities is that this um, there has been a track record uh, of tolerance of religious minorities in Ukraine that uh, set in, well, uh, quite some historically, but of course um, uh, expanded exponentially after the fall of the USSR when Ukraine began to serve as something of a hub, if you will, for many denominations that were active throughout the former Soviet Union. In other words, uh, various theological schools, seminaries, publishing houses, humanitarian efforts, and the like uh, were set up in Ukraine so as to serve uh, other parts of the former Soviet Union when those states, such as Russia, for example, or, uh, would not uh, allow various religious institutions to take a place uh, uh, in public space and to be active uh, actors in terms of shaping public policy. Um, so in, in conclusion, I would just note that the pro-Ukrainian political consensus among, relig among religious institutions and an established ecumenical approach that centers on solving problems and engaging in coordinated action and cooperation um, provides uh, tremendous capital with which we can work towards uh, uh, peace building in the future. Um, because the perilous threats that uh, Ukraine has faced in the recent past, and be it from authoritarian leadership or um, daily bombings uh, these days, 
Religious institutions, and specifically minority religious institutions, have among the best prospects to contribute to peace building within Orthodox communities, within this conflict between the two Orthodox churches, and uh, during this time of war between uh, Ukraine and Russia. I thank once again the authors for uh, distilling a, a tremendously entangled uh, situation into terms that are uh, uh, quite clear and coherent. Great. Thank you so much, Kathy. I, I really appreciate the emphasis that you placed on the, the, the risks associated with the persistence of religious divisions in Ukraine into the period following the war. Um, set aside the uh, enormous potential that's present in religious actors and religious institutions to help heal the social fabric of Ukraine af after this war. Um, now I'd like to welcome to the webinar uh, Nick Denisenko and invite him to share his reflections. Please, Nick, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much, and uh, greetings to all of you from very snowy northwest Indiana in the midst of multiple winter storms. Um, I would like to uh, thank the United States Institute for Peace and um, also uh, my colleagues Kathy, Andri, Dennis, and Tanya for really providing a, a clear, concise, comprehensible introduction survey of the religious landscape with references to both possibilities for uh, reconciliation, for amelioration of the catastrophe on the ground, um, and also potentially outside of Ukraine. And uh, also, I think, uh, important references that I would like to tease out a little bit uh, concerning problems, problems in the uh, interreligious dialogue, problems especially between the Orthodox Church of Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, so I want to start uh, by just mentioning that my own work has focused on the history of Orthodoxy in modern Ukraine. And as a historian of this period and of this topic, it's almost always reporting and analyzing bad news. Uh, essentially, the divisions that we see on the ground today are the outcomes in motion, moving targets of divisions that originated uh, certainly in the early 20th century during the Revolutionary War, and some might argue long before then, some 300 years before. And certain, my own scholarship has focused on the events and the figures and the interpretations that led to these divisions. And so it does seem like it's just bad news that is constantly pervading and circulating about uh, the situation among the Orthodox on the ground in Ukraine. And I would like to thank the authors of, of this report today for giving us examples of good news, because this kind of positive news at the grassroots level, things that are happening that people don't know about, uh, fails to break the surface so that we don't see the, the bubbling up that occurs uh, at the grassroots level. And, and this leads to, to kind of the first point. One of the problems that is ongoing that needs to be addressed is uh, mastering, circulating, and honoring the authorship of the narrative of what is religion in Ukraine, which is kind of the overarching topic that uh, we have in front of us today. 
And I realize that this seems simplistic, but I don't mean to be reductionistic in saying that uh, honoring authorship of the narrative is very important. There was a small point that uh, Tanya made in her part of the presentation concerning uh, claims that are made by the UGCC, by the OCU, and certainly by the UOC of being the true Ukrainian church. This argument or debate actually originated in the late 19th and early 20th century on uh, which church, which religious figures, which metropolitan, which religious leader, uh, there are a number of different categories that we can look at, is the successor to the ancient Kievan church. And, and so this is really essentially, in a certain sense, a debate about history. Who is a legitimate successor to the baptism that occurred in Kiev in the year 988? And there are a number of religious organizations and churches that claim to be the legitimate successors. Through the entirety of the post-Soviet period, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that was previously under the Moscow Patriarchate made numerous uh, claims that they are the true and authentic successor of the ancient Kievan Metropolia. Uh, and I think that in these discussions that sometimes we don't talk about why this is important. This is important because of the way that this figures into the dynamics of religion and politics, of uh, specific politicians who try to exploit the church for their own purposes, and on the part of the church, using that argument to try to gain the upper hand in uh, both the global public view and also the national public view. And then finally, um, the uh, specific uh, situation on the ground among the religious leaders. So there's an art of persuasion here uh, as to who the true and legitimate successor is in the Ukrainian church. And this is an ongoing situation that is particularly argued among academics, but it has implications for everyday people on the ground as well. And then the second thing that I, I wanted to point out is that uh, Tanya mentioned also in her part of the presentation that there are theological resources that are underdeveloped that have potential to contribute to peace building, to humanitarian aid. And one of the most important things that she mentioned uh, was this notion of the other. Uh, certainly underdeveloped, under-discussed, and we don't have time to get into it uh, at, at great length here, is the problem of who the other is. And what's uh, rather somewhat of a paradox here is that it is the orthodox theological and liturgical ritual tradition itself that all of the major actors point to and claim as their own, the UGCC, the OCU, the UOC, uh, that actually demands of their faithful, of their religious leaders, that they uh, not only encounter the other in uncomfortable spaces, not to mention comfortable spaces, but uncomfortable spaces, and uh, to do so with humility, to make the sign of the cross, to bow before them, uh, to uh, ask them for forgiveness, and then to receive their forgiveness. And so part of what I think needs to be discussed uh, among academics, uh, 
religious leaders and potentially in cooperation with uh, psychotherapists who will be doing their work on the ground, that very hard work of reconciliation, of bringing people together and rebuilding communities that are trying to recover from catastrophe, is to marshal these theological, liturgical, ritual resources and to think of it through the lens of ritual formation, of taking rubble, of taking catastrophe and reforming it into uh, something that is sustainable and buildable uh, and where the successive generations can then point to the people who are on the ground to receive that training and be able to say that they gave us these theological, spiritual resources that are regularly rehearsed both among religious elites and among the people on the ground for the purpose of rebuilding community and to learn how to see the other in a new way. And then the last thing that I'll say uh, that's, I think, underdeveloped that I didn't really hear a ton of mention of here, uh, because we use the word orthodox both specifically and particularly in reference to the OCU, the UOC, or the Russian Orthodox Church, but there are uh, a total of 15 independent Orthodox churches that are kind of standing on the sideline uh, and essentially enabling the status quo to, to, to continue on, they actually have a role to play. Uh, and one of the things that I think needs to enter into the, the larger discourse, the imagination, is what role can they play? And this is something that I hope to develop further in my own work for a conference uh, that will be coming up in March in Edmonton. Uh, sorry for the shameless plug here, uh, but this uh, particular role that they have to play is one of mediation, of actually providing those comfortable spaces, keeping in mind that all of this is, while the, the crucial humanitarian catastrophe that needs to be addressed and the hard work needs to be done in Ukraine, is a lot of that hard work needs to be done outside of Ukraine as well. I know that there are many questions, so I want to thank everyone for the hard work that they've done in uh, organizing this important event and in uh, providing a, a, such a great introduction and analysis. So I'll stop my comments for now and turn it back to Peter. Great. Nick, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the, the point you made about the intersection of religion and psychosocial support and, and healing in, in Ukraine. It's so important and um, an area that, that USIP is also helping, uh, hoping to be able to support um, in the year going forward. So um, we have had so many very interesting and rich questions come in from the audience. Um, and so without further ado, I would like to go ahead um, and get into some of those. Um, some of them are kind of very large in scale um, and, and complex. But there's there's a question uh, that's sort of a point of clarification that that has come up that I wanted to, to start with. If one questioner who points out that the UOC was described um, as autonomous within the structure of the Moscow Patriarchate, this questioner points out that yes, it had certain self-administrative rights, but um, was but the the questioner believes that the UOC was not autonomous in the more conventional 
traditional sense that we would talk about an autonomous as distinct from an autocephalous church within the Orthodox tra tradition. So as compared to the status that the church has in Finland or, or Japan. And so we're just looking for a clarification here about the status of the UOC kind of within um, the uh, Orthodox canon, as it were. Would one of you like to address that point? Yeah, Tanya. Maybe I will be very first to start because it's not the easiest question to start with, to be honest. And it's one of the tough questions today. Uh, and I will just uh, jump in the final uh, part of the, my answer. I don't know exactly how I should answer on it because no one knows today. And even you will see officials who we know on public they cannot explain what's actually going on, unfortunately. Uh, from our point of view, of course, the report was done in 2020-2021, before full-scale invasion mainly, and we just adapted it to the latest dynamics, which is impossible to get all of it. But you can see some recent publication on USAP and Berkeley websites, uh, written together with uh, Dennis and Peter. And um, from our perspective, of course, as it's according to the documents, UOC was autonomous church. And partly it was true in a practical level, partly, of course, not. And right now is an uh, issue and a time to get a new status of this church. And actually, I would like to refer here to uh, Nick's uh, comment on other Orthodox churches, which are independent. I think that the role here for them to play and to step in and to get into discussion about it, not only referring to ecumenical patriarchy or getting it inside Ukrainian issue, because it should be a mainly global Orthodox issue in general, and uh, as we can see for now, for Ukrainian religious leaders and especially Orthodox leaders, it's impossible right now to stop and to think about this issue. They do not even sometimes get physical time. But for the global Orthodoxy, and I, I still think that Ukrainian question is partly global Orthodox issue right now because of those connections to Istanbul and to Moscow, it should be a huge discussion on all Orthodox level, and then it's possible to get it. But for now, we've got a council from 27th of May, which is saying that UOC is independent from Moscow. We lack some documents, we lack some decisions, and they didn't ask for autocephaly uh, themselves, but at least there are different people and um, that Ukrainian church is still a part of uh, Ukrainian religious landscape. Thanks. Thanks, Tanya. Would any of the other speakers like to add to this before I move on to the next question? Yeah, Nick, please. I'll just be very brief. Thank, I think Tanya answered the question very well. Uh, from an official legal perspective in the Orthodox world, there is an actual list of autonomous churches and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church from the time that it received its certificate in 1990 um, was not listed among those autonomous churches because the language did not reach the threshold. So if you were looking at it analogously from a state standpoint, it didn't, um, it didn't have everything that it needed to even be considered autonomous. Uh, it, from my perspective, I think it's problematic in the current discussion because, as Tanya said, they declared independence but they didn't use the orthodox legal language of autocephaly in that May 27, 2022 meeting. 
And that puts them in a gray area that appears to be intentional where they want to claim that they're independent, but they're also not seeking that legal certification of autocephaly. And that's problematic because then the other Orthodox churches uh, don't have the customary means of communicating with them, relating with them, even writing a letter properly to greet them. Um, and it also obviously creates, I think, confusion for uh, Orthodox both in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine and, and really everyone else as to, well, if they're independent, but they're not autocephalous, which is a legal language, then what are they? And it seems to be intentional, um, but that's probably outside of the scope of, of what we're trying to accomplish here to pursue that further. But but the simple answer to the question is, legally, they, they are not really autonomous. Right. No, thanks very much, Nick. That's that, that's helpful. Um, very different kind of question now. Um, I, I think it'll be useful for our, our audience to um, just have um, some understanding of how the full-scale war has affected everyday religious life in Ukraine. And so we have a question here that, that asks, to, to what extent are churches able to continue Sunday and other services? As an example, how was Christmas and Epiphany observed in 2023, 2024? What, what, what does everyday religious life under conditions of full war look like in Ukraine? Maybe I should step in again. Um, it's like really hard to explain. So it's the same as ordinary uh, life of Ukrainian society today. So it depends on everyday news and everyday shellings or not, recent alarms or not. Uh, anyway, people are trying to get their opportunity to get to the Sunday mass or Sunday service or get any kind of individual practices. Sometimes, of course, they moved at home or to the shelter. Uh, but I would say that religious life is really active as the same as the other parts of life. It depends on our external uh, occasions. It depends on the situation of war and which we've got today or tomorrow. And definitely we don't know what we've got. And uh, for today, uh, we've got more than 700 religious objects that were damaged because of war. So definitely uh, the situation changed. And especially for those people who we hope to support and to see again who are under occupation right now. And this is the toughest uh, task for them to stay there, and a lot of religious leaders actually staying here, there, just for people who cannot leave the territory or they still need to be in, under the threat. So definitely uh, the same uh, almost practices they faced uh, without big, massive public events, of course, because it's uh, insufficient and it's not secure. But still, uh, there are uh, much more individual practices which we've got after pandemic times. So sometimes uh, priests are ready to support and to get spiritual aid for people when even they cannot travel or um, any kind of using all the kind of devices and opportunities. Great. Thank you very much, Tanya. Um, and any of our other speakers want to add to, to this one before I move to the next question. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and move to uh, another question. Um, with regards to so this question, it's about the point that was made um, about um, 
uh, possibilities for cooperation with co-religious in Russia. Um, and this person asks, with regard to that comment about co-religionists in Russia being well-placed to help post-war reconciliation, how might this be navigated given the Russian Orthodox Church's vocal and continued support for the war? Well, first, uh, I, it, sorry, go ahead, Tanya. Um, no, 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 please, Kathy. Um, I, I would simply uh, note that in, when I mentioned that about co-religionists um, in Ukraine uh, working with or being able to do the kinds of dialogues and some kind of uh, coordinated um, efforts to bring about re reconciliation. I mean, this is not going to happen in the near future. Um, this is a long-term project. Um, the sense of betrayal of having been invaded by Russia and the massive, massive damage that has been inflicted on Ukraine um, means that um, this is a very much of a long-term project. And precisely because it is uh, so difficult, um, not everyone is well positioned to engage in it, even in the long term. But I do think perhaps, um, uh, especially when one thinks about uh, religious organizations that um, function in Ukraine and function in Russia and function elsewhere in the world, there are nonetheless for where they will come together. And they do nonetheless have uh, a great deal. They have something in common. Um, and so that at least bodes well for long term prospects for reestablishing dialogue. But I underline that that is a long, I really see that clearly as a long-term uh, uh, prospect, because even uh, just a, a small example, um, uh, Many of the Protestant communities in Ukraine previously had uh, espoused a pacifist or, uh, orientation. Uh, and for example, they did not serve in the army with, with weapons. Uh, they were conscientious objectors. Um, those in, uh, we have a strange situation whereby those, uh, the Protestant counterparts in Russia are uh, supporters, if not vigorous supporters of, of the war. And yet on the Ukrainian side, they have primarily abandoned that kind of pacifist view and serve certainly as military chaplains, as Tanya mentioned, but even as soldiers as well. So in other words, what uh, the commonality that did exist uh, between Ukrainians uh, and their co-religionists in Russia, that in and of itself has been strained, but it hasn't been obliterated. There is still something there. Um, so um, that I think in the long term um, provides certain prospects, but I emphasize the long term. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Tanya, did you want to add to that? Okay, great. So um, we have a question now asking whether Ukrainian religious institutions are active on human rights issues, particularly gay rights, women's rights, and the right to reproductive health. If so, how? Um, so could uh, one of you perhaps uh, speak to how the uh, various religious groups position themselves and engage on that set of issues? Uh, maybe I will start, maybe Andrea and Dennis will add something. Uh, so definitely we've got one organization that represents uh, the biggest part of religious communities and institutions in Ukraine. That's all Ukrainian Council of uh, Religious Organizations and Churches in Ukraine. And uh, you can check the official website that's uh, mentioned in a report like AUKRO. 
and they got a lot of open statements against actually uh, liberation, I would say, of this human rights. But it doesn't mean that they are against human rights as an idea. So they wanted to get their own vision, for example, on the um, issue of domestic violence. They didn't like some parts of Istanbul Convention, which was ratified in Ukraine, but they uh, actually adopted and uh, they made themselves additional law uh, in regards to domestic violence, just to escape some of the terminology they don't like. So I would say that definitely there is much more space for open discussion that is possible. Unfortunately, it's not well organized with uh, secular human rights organizations. Uh, and definitely there are some religious institutions uh, which are not so public, but they're much more liberal in their views on everyday life. Uh, but definitely that's a huge uh, I would say ground for next dialogues and especially in terms of human rights in post-war period of time, because it's not just about gender or it's not just about uh, law system, but in general about human rights protection from the very beginning. So maybe, Andre, you've got something to add. Yeah, generally questions of uh, LGBT and um, are actively politicized and it's not something that just happened uh, in the recent years often in ukraine when one of the political party or political powers were trying to bring up those uh, questions uh, of legalization of uh, same-sex marriages for example or even uh, when there were discussions about some kind of civil partnerships uh, usually this issue is um, a great platform for different political actors to get involved and to win um, extra visibility. Uh, I don't say that this is the same in the religious area, but every time when um, this issue was brought up in the media environment, uh, religious institutions also were reacting in the same way. And um, yeah, for example, um, a year ago when there were uh, public discussions around uh, possibility of introducing some form of civil partnerships for, um, so it's not like the same sex marriage, but um, opportunity for uh, people to have uh, legal rights. Or Orthodox churches, they uh, were mainly uh, against such initiatives and uh, obviously talking from their uh, theological positions. Okay, thank you very much, Andre and, and, and Tanya. We, we have a question now about um, the potential role of the Ukrainian diaspora in peace building. The, the, the questioner notes that in many countries around the world, you have a, a large multi-confessional Ukrainian diaspora. Obviously, due to the large number of Ukrainians that have departed the country uh, after the onset of the full-scale war, uh, in many countries, those Ukrainian diasporas are now even larger. And so the question is about uh, whether you or any of you see a potential role for Ukrainians living outside Ukraine um, to be involved uh, in religious peace building in constructive ways. Who'd like to tackle that one? Kathy, please. Um I, I would answer that briefly on 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 two levels. That is to say, um, uh, when you think about established Ukrainian diasporic communities, I think there clearly is a level. Uh, there clearly is a contribution that they 
uh, are making and can continue to make. And I would personally, I would certainly like to see that expanded and accelerated. Um, it's that kind of outside uh, what both Nick and uh, Tatiana uh, alluded to, sort of the um, uh, the greater Orthodox community uh, contributing to finding solutions to the unclear ambivalent status of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and to um, either uh, reestablishing what is primarily the norm in predominantly Orthodox countries where there's a single Orthodox church or in forging some kind of new norm where there are multiple Orthodox churches within Ukraine. Uh, it's hard to say which scenario will emerge as the as uh, will be realized, but I think clearly there is a role uh, for diasporic organizations, religious or otherwise, to play a role in that. Um, when, as in so many other instances, the war is an absolute game changer. That is to say, uh, um, uh, estimates run as high as, uh, as from a quarter to a third of the Ukrainian population is outside of Ukrainian borders. Um, a good many of them, no doubt, will stay there. It all depends on how long this war uh, carries on for and what will be the state of Ukraine at, at the time of its ending. But to the extent that those Ukrainians stay there, an additional source of conflict between the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine is the ability to open parishes to serve this burgeoning uh, uh, community of Ukrainian believers who are outside of Ukraine. Uh, one church, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, in once again, in going back to what Nick mentioned with sort of legal terms, can and does establish uh, communities uh, that are associated with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the other church cannot. And so that is a point of contention, yet another, between uh, these uh, two jurisdictions within a single church. Nick, please. Uh, thank you. And I, 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 without repeating the Kathy's remarks, I think that um, in the late uh, Soviet period, in particular, you know, kind of the late years of the Cold War, the late Soviet period, the uh, years where independent Ukraine was uh, in its very beginning, we saw a rise of Ukrainian studies in the larger area of Slavic studies, which generated awareness and raised new questions and really uh, invited thinkers to think critically about what is Ukraine, what are Ukrainian origins, how, how are Ukraine and Belarus and, and even Moldova different from Russia. And so the Ukrainian diaspora has has contributed a great deal in generating that awareness, um, in particular in kind of sustaining the memory of the Holodomor uh, up until uh, Ukraine uh, attained its independence in 1991. So so much has been achieved, and I think that um, looking ahead, that that one thing to watch out for, and this this is in a certain sense is just extending a little bit of what Kathy just said is in migration, what kinds of problems do uh, immigrants and refugees bring with them? What kinds of conflicts come with them? One of the things that I've been attuned to, to which there is no um, easy solution, is exactly this problem that Kathy just mentioned, the fact that according to its statute, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine is not allowed to have its own parishes outside of Ukraine. The idea is, is that uh, one nation state, a church in a nation state, will only uh, attend to its flock. And so, for example, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Canada, 
and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the United States of America, uh, both are part of the ecumenical patriarchate of Constantinople. Uh, they're not independent entities. They can't simply uh, conduct their own affairs without consulting the ecumenical patriarchate. And so we have, again, both problems and opportunities. Um, there, there is a real need to reach out to refugees, to become aware, to, to grant them uh, resources, to provide them with rituals in their native language uh, where they can you know, engage their native customs, uh, whether those be burial rites or baptisms or weddings, there's a real need and it's becoming uh, that much larger. Um, but on the other hand, we also have to be aware that, that sometimes people won't have those needs met. And here, I think we would also raise the question of how can the Ukrainian diaspora marshal its own resources and partner strategically with others to provide therapeutic resources to people who are coming outside of Ukraine and bringing that trauma with them. Um, and I say this in mind and here with a nod to Kathy's uh, research from a remark she made in a different webinar the memory of the Soviet exploitation of psychiatry to, to add more trauma to people, to, um, you know, to use them, to exploit them, that stigma comes with it. And I think that, that we need to generate awareness that, that, that there are people who have need. Uh, and and the, I, that's where I think the Ukrainian diaspora can, can play an important role on the ground, is, is to really reach out to refugees and to work with others on the ground to make them aware of what the needs are and to help them provide uh, that information and those resources. Great, very helpful, both of you, Nick and Kathy, thank you. Um, and any other uh, thoughts on this diaspora issue? Okay, so um, it, it, we still have three questions from the audience that I'd like to try to get through. Um, and I want to also make sure that we leave uh, a couple of minutes uh, to hear from our colleague, Mary Glantz, uh, just as we wrap up. So um, let me uh, suggest that we do the following. I'll ask all three questions at the same time, um, and then I'll go around our virtual room and just invite each of you to both respond to those questions if you'd like, but also to share any final thoughts or reflections that you have uh, before we hand over to um, uh, Mary. So the first question um, asks, what is the status of the Roman Catholic Church on either side? Is the Pope's neutral position appreciated or does it cause frustration? Do you think that it places the Roman Catholic Church in a position to build peace? That's question number one. The second question uh, uh, relates to the All-Ukrainian Council of Churches and Religious Organizations that's been referred to a couple of times. Um, we had the opportunity here at USIP to host many of the members of that council uh, when they visited Washington, D.C. last fall, and you can actually find a recording of, of the event we did with them on our, on our YouTube page. So the question asks if you could please discuss and evaluate the role and activity of that council um, in its present interreligious efforts and 
the possible roles that it might play in peace building. And the final question uh, says uh, that mention was made, some mention was made of the difficulty of creating and maintaining safe spaces for both individual and organizational dialogue. Um, you know, I think perhaps exacerbated by some of the security and political issues that have come up during the war and the Ukrainian government's position on some of the religion issues. The questioner asks, how can these spaces be created and protected? So with those three questions out there now, I thought maybe we can just go around the room um, uh, because I want to leave the final word for the authors. If they don't mind, I'll go in reverse order um, of appearance and uh, invite Nick uh, to offer any responses or final reflections first. Thank you very much. Um, I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, I had on my list of things to discuss the Roman Catholic Church because of um, this particular Pope's tendency to um, sometimes uh, talk to the media uh, and questions concerning, is he representing the Catholic Church? Is he speaking uh, in accordance with the magisterium? Is this a teaching document? Um, certainly, uh, at the reactionary level, there is frustration among uh, many organizations and leaders, and I think people. Um, and I think that as a historian, I'm interested in the in the in the larger topic of of how does Vatican politique today compare with Vatican politique at the time of the millennium of Christianity when the Ukrainian Catholic Church outside of Ukraine was extraordinarily frustrated with the Vatican and its uh, continued attempt to uh, apparently placate the Russian Orthodox Church. This is an ongoing question that I think also pertains to the World Council of Churches and the kinds of audiences that it gives to the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and to the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, where the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, their delegation felt underrepresented and not given enough time in this sort of initial round. And so I think that that uh, on the one hand, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Um, I think that those of us who are in the position to comment and to be critical and to appraise and to offer suggestions need to continue to do so. Uh, I also would hope that political and religious agents and actors would be open to uh, some kind of a more assertive, prophetic gesture from the Roman Catholic Church and from the Pope in particular. Um, and as for the other questions, I'd defer to the other panelists. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much, Nick. And thanks again for, for being with us today. Uh, Kathy, to you for final thoughts and responses to any of those questions. Just briefly, I think the activities of, of the current pope has been an enormous, enormous source of disappointment in Ukraine. Um, and this, of course, I would only mention uh, that this then has reverberations for the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church that is, of course, connected with the uh, uh, the pope and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, uh, in terms of the council, um, I do think the council um, plays an important role role in forging consensus, this kind of ecumenical, uh, this active engagement in problem solving and this coordinated cooperation. I think it's a factor in fostering that in Ukraine, um, not just the kind of pro-Ukrainian uh, political consensus, but a, a pro-European, pro-Western. And that then, of course, bumps up against the fact that we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, LGBT and other forms of gender politics, religious institutions by and large 
large uh, maintain a fairly conservative position across the board. This is increasingly out of step with the changes that are occurring on the ground. And of course, the desired um, uh, the desire, the plans to uh, integrate more c concretely Ukraine uh, within the European Union that mandate some kind of relaxation of those uh, accepted discriminatory practices. So in other words, the Council is in a forum in which those kinds of tensions can be worked out and further forge consensus. And on the notion of safe spaces, I think, unfortunately, uh, the entire country is not safe. Um, uh, we, we just mentioned religious practices over the, the recent holidays. I mean, the country sustained uh, uh, massive, massive shelling. Um, I, I don't think one can say there's any safe spaces within Ukraine today. Thanks so much, Kathy, and, and thank you also for, for being with us today. Finally, let me turn to the, the group of authors. And uh, Andrea, if we could start with you for any final thoughts or responses to the questions. Yeah, there is uh, difficult to add anything to uh, our colleagues. Uh, I just wanted to say that um, on the topic of Pope and uh, his statements, because uh, general frustration not only among religious people in Ukraine, but generally in Ukrainian society, and um, reaction of uh, public opinion was somehow similar to those as um, to the actions of uh, Red Cross, for example. And uh, in uh, Ukrainian public opinion, you cannot really be uh, neutral in this kind of situation. So it it makes um, everything more complicated, obviously, for Roman Catholic Church in Ukraine and even for Greek Catholic churches. And uh, as, as Catherine already mentioned, that uh, they had to explain this situation somehow. And uh, I believe that it was uh, rather successful because the general focus of uh, this uh, frustration switched from the church in general to the Pope as uh, as the individual in, uh, in media opinion. Um, yeah, and I think my uh, colleagues will will add something something else to this. Okay, thank you, Andre. Uh, Dennis, how about you? Any anything? Uh, any for clo closing thoughts or responses to the questions? I have a few words about uh, Council of Churches, because uh, now, in last time, the role of uh, for for us for me. And the role of the Council of Churches has significantly diminished, primarily because the Council has failed to adequately respond to the prohibitionist policy against one of its members, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And now it's a very big problem for question peace-building process. It's, I think about yeah, no, it's a, it's a very important point you're making, because even though the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is still formally a member of the Council, when you look at its most recent public statements and activities, one church group is conspicuously absent from everything that they're doing. Tanya, uh, how about any responses or closing thoughts from you? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I would, uh, maybe I will add something more uh, to previously said, but 
regarding the Pope um, and its question of Roman Catholic Church, I totally agree that some split on taking into account just Pope Francis and the overall Church. Uh, by the way, anyway, uh, Catholic uh, Roman Catholic Church in Ukraine is really active and especially close to the frontline uh, territories. And uh, I just want to remind you about the big project which was uh, organized and supported directly by Pope Francis. It uh, was called Pope for Ukraine in 2018-19, and it helped a lot. So I would say that all the time that's no uh, simple answers. And uh, I know and I'm monitoring, I'm not a specialist in Roman Catholic Church, but I'm monitoring my colleagues. Some of them uh, travel directly to Vatican to speak several times with Pope Francis. And they said that it's not so easy and it shouldn't be taken so easily from his uh, public speeches about Ukrainian position. And it's more about a religious leader who unites the whole world. But from the other side of, of course, uh, Catherine and Nick already mentioned and Andre about um, this misunderstanding. But still, all the times we've got some de decisions or public statements from all the public figures, it splashes on the waves from a no to a total yes. So maybe it will change again. Uh, for, uh, regarding the Council of Churches, just to add more, in regards to peace building, they got an overall Ukrainian strategy in 2019. It's called Ukraine is our home, but still it's like in general about uh, religious actors that they should take place in peace building, but no details and no practical uses so far. And I would be happy to see, of course, more about dialogue and communication work from AUKRO, but sometimes it's uh, not understandable even now why they've got statements without some members of AUKRO and no discussion inside. Uh, I, would, I would be happy to see this council again as a platform for dialogue and discussions, even with tough questions, especially with tough questions, but not like neglecting it for official positive statements. And the last one about safe space. Um, it's really hard. Sometimes it's possible to get some kind of safe space in a shelter to get some sessions. But I would like to say that it's um, possible, thanks to diaspora and international players, to get them abroad. And I would say that the main part right now, and of course, we all were monitoring Davos meetings and others. So it's possible sometimes to get it in Ukraine and especially outside Ukraine. So just to start uh, to speak and to decide on what to do. And I hope it will go on. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you all so much. And, and finally, I'd like to hand over to my colleague, Mary Glantz, the director of USIP's Russian-Ukraine programs, for some closing remarks. And Mary, I know that earlier in your career, you worked on religious freedom issues um, in regions neighboring Ukraine. Um, and so th this is a set of issues that you have some familiarity with. So, so, so please share, share some final thoughts with us. Thank you, Peter. Um, yeah, that's true. I, I was a religious freedom officer for the Department of State, so I have some experience with it. But that said, I want to really thank the authors of this report, Andre, Dennis, and Tanya. Um, as as we've as we've heard throughout this event today, what you've done is incredibly valuable. You've provided us a lot of um, absolutely essential information. From my perspective, um, a lot of us at USIP and in my center, we're working on finding ways to help Ukrainians build a just and lasting peace. 
Um, the work you've done now is absolutely essential to that effort. Um, it's helped us to better understand Ukrainian society in general right now. Um, this is obviously a very part, important part of Ukrainian society. So understanding the religious makeup of Ukraine is absolutely essential. But in addition, as you've highlighted today in your presentations, um, understanding the role that religion can play and must play in peace building is also vital. And it's something that you three have done a, an extremely good job of in this report. And so basically, I would suggest that anybody who's interested in peace building, um, especially in Ukraine, read this report. And I think that as we look forward to building a just and sustainable peace in Ukraine, it's going to be required reading for all of us. So um, I'd like to thank you again for your tremendous work, and I look forward to um, working with you in future as well. And thank you, Peter. This is great. Great. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, so I guess it just remains for me to give a final word of thanks to all of our speakers today. First and foremost, the authors of the report and, and a reminder to all of you in the audience that you can download that report uh, as a PDF from USIP's website. The landing page for the report also helpfully contains some links to other analysis and commentary pieces we've written on uh, religion in Ukraine. And please watch this space. This is a set of issues that USIP will continue to work on, certainly in partnership um, with a number of our, our, our speakers. Um, and finally, uh, a huge word of thanks to all of you in the audience who joined us today, uh, and to thank you for your questions uh, that greatly enriched our discussion. So best wishes to everyone, and we look forward to seeing you at a future USIP event. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Music